Man, now that Elon Musk is buying Twitter, I, I wonder if more people will like and share our podcast. John Pop, do you think that's possible? For sure. Well, we can we can only hope it's for sure. Folks, rate us five stars, leave us a comment, and John Pop, what's the most important thing they can do? Share. That's right. Thank you, Johnny. Go ahead, do it now, and thank you as always. From the Heritage Foundation, I'm Tim Desher, and this is Heritage Explains. Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the, both the, uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. It's important to the fun- function of democracy. Um, it's important to the function of uh, the United States uh, as, as a free country and many other countries and to help, actually to help freedom in the world. That's Elon Musk at a recent TED Talk, explaining why buying Twitter would be a step toward more free speech as he strives to treat it as a town square of free ideas. Since that talk, he actually bought it. So now what? Is Twitter going to be the town square he refers to? Let's check in with the left-wing media and their response. Here's Brian Stelter at CNN. Elon Musk has pursued this. Um, people thought might be just buying it as a plaything. Didn't know how serious he was. Now he's obviously very serious. He's committed his capital to it. He wants to build this business. But I don't think he has, based on his public statements, it's clear he has a very little understanding of the complexities that go into content moderation and, and hate speech policies and the like. So he's about to learn how it works. And it might be a whole lot more complicated than he realizes. How about we head over to ABC and check in on Sonny Hostin from The View. And in fact, on Twitter, it is predominantly straight white men. So when Elon Musk says, wow, this is about free speech, it seems to me that it's about free speech of straight white men. And so let them have it. Let them just go at it. I enjoy the block button on Twitter. Um, I think it has a real outsized influence in, in, in our world because politicians and celebrities are on it. Let's just leave it with this viral gem from MSNBC's Ari Melber. You own all of Twitter or Facebook or what have you. You don't have to explain yourself. You don't even have to be transparent. You could secretly ban one party's candidate or all of its candidates, all of its nominees, or you could just secretly turn down the reach of their stuff and turn up the reach of something else. And the rest of us might not even find out about it till after the election. Elon Musk says this is all to help people because he is just a free speech, philosophically clear, open-minded helper. Wow. Welcome to planet Earth, Ari. That's very telling. So Elon Musk buys Twitter. He refers to it as a town square and says he's going to promote free speech on it. 
Sounds like a good thing to me. But what does it all mean? What is a town square? Can a private company like Twitter be held to public standards that a town square affords? What does this mean for the left and their control of big tech? If Twitter and other social media platforms are the modern town square, we need individuals like Elon Musk who will make sure that all Americans can exercise their right to free speech on these platforms. Joel Thayer is the president of the Digital Progress Institute and a good friend of the Heritage Foundation. He recently wrote a piece that answers all of these questions, and after this, he explains. It's because of support from listeners like you that we can continue to produce podcasts like Heritage Explains and SCOTUS 101. And you can help us keep it up by going to www.heritage.org slash podcast today to make your tax-deductible gift. Joel, big tech companies like Twitter, you know, they wield enormous power over our free expression. And as Elon Musk has said, you know, they are the public square, the town square where people can say what they want. But, you know, Twitter in particular, they have a documented... Uh, track record of chilling this free speech. Now, in your recent piece, you talk more about you know the reasoning and the implications of Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and what that means for free expression. But just start us out, just just from the beginning. How can it be a town square or a public square if it's privately owned? Traditionally, public squares are run by the government and mm-hmm. operated by the government, but that's not always the case. As I noted in my article. Uh, there are different. There are public squares that are privately owned, and the mm. way they get that distinction hmm. is that there is some sort of conveyance between uh, some public benefit or sorry, some government benefit to that private actor as a result of that exchange. Okay, so let's say somebody says, "I want to build this massive thing onto the building that I occupy and that I own," and the government says, "Okay, you can do that, but you have to you have to make this." open to the public kind of a thing? Is that Sure. And a, okay. and a, a good example of that is actually our former president, Donald Trump. Okay. Uh, so when he was building Trump Tower, he was, uh, I, when he decided to build it, he wanted to exceed the uh, New York's height limit. Okay. And so he was offered, he offered to the government that, look, if you let me exceed this uh, particular height limit mm-hmm. and give me a variance, I will open up this park that ultimately I own and operate uh-huh. and use, yeah. but it'll, I'll leave it open to the public because you conferred to me a benefit that I didn't ordinarily have. And as and f- so that it's there's uh, some meeting of the minds for the government, yeah. you too can have uh, uh, you too can have something by allowing me to uh, open up this beautiful park in my beautiful building <laughs> in the middle. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm just speaking Trump. That's what I'm doing. Speaking I'm Trump, just speaking Trump. Yeah. Uh, and and, and frankly, I won't close it off to them. Yeah. I will give them full access to that. Okay, so pivot now, pivot now to social media. We, we want these to be a, um, a bastion for free expression. We, you know, these have become the town square, mm-hmm. the public square. How is that? How has that happened? And then where has social media gone from there? Sure. So I think even from the start, even before social media companies, the internet 
at large was generally thought of as a giant library. The idea behind the internet was to confer information un almost unfettered. And that was basically Tim, uh, I think Tim Berners-Lee's dream when he opened up the World Wide Web. And you see that bleeding through uh, with different uh, statutes that have been codified, let's say like Section 230 of the, uh, of the Communications Act, yep. which the idea behind it was, yes, we want to make sure that we're getting dirty stuff off the internet. Like we don't want porn on websites. We don't want, we also don't want to uh, encourage uh, harassment or other things. Hmm. However, we want to make sure that not only do they have the protection to curate those awful things on the internet, but ensure that they also allow freedom of choice. They feel comfortable mm -hmm. to allow things that are not necessarily fall in the category of lewd harassment or cruel or whatever the laundry list of things yeah. that they couldn't do yeah. or other quote unquote otherwise offensive material, which is a very vague term. But we want them to make sure we want them to ensure that they feel comfortable putting on things that maybe the company itself doesn't agree with. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, something that allows this whole idea behind uh, the public square, which is encouraging this cradle of free expression, ensuring that this information that they are now hosting yeah. is, broad, is broadly used and also, frankly, broadly disseminated without government intervention right. and these companies' intervention. Hmm. But unfortunately, through a slew of different case law, which I'm sure we're going to get into, yes. uh, it hasn't really worked out that way. Hmm. And it it seems as if some, some statutes have been, particularly Section 230, have been overread, okay. in, in, my, in my opinion, yeah. to mean that you can do uh, as a as a social media company or any other internet platform whatever you want yeah with legal with legal immunity and with impunity okay well let's let's pivot to that because sure. i i, I want to talk about you know there is a lot of um confusion and if if you go to any tech conversation in this town in dc or anywhere you know tune in anywhere there's there's a lack of clarity in terms of things like 230 or things like different court decisions that have weighed in on the town, public square, town, town square, uh, nature of social media, of the Internet. And I wanted to kind of get your your take on what is established. What do we know? Uh, what have courts said? What has Congress said um, to to guide us and kind of clear up the murkiness? Sure. And. You noted one example, like the courts and the previous uh, guidance that we have been given from the judiciary are, frankly, very favorable to these platforms to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and how they want to do it. But it seems like that's changing, hmm. especially when you listen to uh, more conservative justices like Senator Kennedy, who openly called uh, these social media platforms public squares. And then you look at uh, justices like Justice Thomas. Hmm. So Justice Clarence Thomas recently said that he believes that the the way lower courts and previous decisions have interpreted Section 230 is really overbroad to the point where it is devoid of Congress's intent for the law. Hmm. So I think that you're seeing a real wave in legal thought hmm. on how we are looking at these uh uh, social media platforms and whether or not they have a responsibility to the public, which, as I noted, yeah. I think they do. Yeah. So if we establish um, and, and we agree that that Twitter and social media is a public square, town square, um, I'm curious then as, you know, we look at Elon Musk. Does he believe that? 
does he understand that? Or does he just say, hey, free speech is good. I'm going to buy this thing and I'm going to do whatever I want to do with it kind of a thing. And that, therein lies the problem. I mean, okay. so you look at Elon Musk. Elon Musk, as much as I, I don't know why he's been pitched this way as some sort of uh, hero of the right. <laughs> uh, but No, Elon, he's stood for many left-wing things. Yeah, and, yeah. Elon Musk is very much of the libertarian mindset. And mm. he is of the ilk that say, just leave us alone. Mm. And so again, now that that's a that, in many ways that's positive, but in another in other ways it's curious. Like, what does he mean by free speech? Mm. What does he mean by? I mean, at, he can he has actually used a lot of his different companies to push agendas that he feels is appropriate. So mm. the question then becomes: Is Elon Musk the savior of Twitter, mm. or do, does it require something more? Does it require actual congressional action? Wow. And I've argued that we can't rely on the. Uh, can't rely on essentially the charity of billionaires <laughs> to get us our first amendment, uh, get, get us free speech principles in the social media context. Yeah. We need Congress to step up and clarify, I argue, clarify the confines of Section 230 to meet today's internet. Because remember, mm. Section 230 was dealing with the internet. Of, it was 1996. Yes. It's a completely different ballgame. We're talking about AOL, man. AOL. And the question was- Dial up. Yeah, whether or not Drudge was a good idea. Right. And now we're we're dealing with- where AOL really had nothing to do with whether what Drudge wrote or anything. And now we have social media companies that can literally pick and choose what is good, what is bad, what by, by extension, what is on, what is off, and also what can be shared and what can't be shared. That, to me, speaks- volumes on their ability to control our elections and the way we view the world. As we continue to talk about the problem, um, I always want to go to solutions. And, and, and our friend uh, here at Heritage, Kara Frederick, she, she, um, I, I watched a hit that she did on TV the other day where she focused on, she didn't necessarily focus on Elon uh, Musk buying Twitter. She said, well, what do we do now? What is the next what is the next thing that we need to do now? And I wanted to give you a chance to weigh in on that because action is extremely important here and we've talked a little bit about it. But what more does action look like? You know, let's say Elon Musk buys Twitter. Great. It happens. It's it's going to happen. What should we be pushing for as that happens? We heard a lot about issues early in the early 90s to early 2000s even today about this concept of net neutrality which was Basically, ISPs are going to rob you of your ability to surf the web. Mm. And the idea was that there was they had such power and control yeah. over information that we had to put some sort of accommodation on them. Mm. Either that means like a no blocking, a, a no blocking rule, a uh, no prioritization rule, a transparency rule. But I mean, are they really the ones doing it? Mm. And maybe in today's age, it's worth evaluating, can those same principles be applied all the way down the stack? So wow. where an ISP, which is basically what Kara was arguing, hmm. where an ISP cannot block block a particular piece of content or data in the same way that, I guess, uh, or, or at least in, from a decision-making standpoint, in the same way 
that maybe Twitter or Facebook can't, or mm. worse, operating systems. Right. And even, I mean, let's face facts. Look at today's app stores. Yeah. I mean, uh, like, take a look at what they did to Parler. Let's take a look at what Apple did to Parler. Yeah. I mean, Apple did that with a flip of a switch and used some BS justification to do it, not yes. to mention they use their, I argue, a monopsony power, which uh, for the uninitiated just means that they're so big as a customer that the that the seller will do whatever the customer says. Yep. They went over to Amazon and said, you can't host this either. Right. So essentially, effectively wiping Parler off the internet yep. based off of one company's decision. Yeah. The company might exist, but if you don't have a host, which was the Amazon server, you know, uh, if you don't have that, you don't exist. There's and, no way that you can have it. And that's why they went away for so long. And I think and another thing why I Again, think that, that's the stack. It's a bunch of different things that help a website or a social media platform exist. And if they're all in bed with each other colluding, then it doesn't allow, you know, yeah, we have a problem at every level. Yeah, it, uh, it's, it's high time for us to stop siloing the internet unnecessarily yeah. and start looking at it more holistically because yeah. as we get more integrated... It, it, with our digital footprint, the more companies interact with us. And right. so hmm. one action, one company doesn't have access to our one footprint. All these companies do. Yeah. So if you want to get rid if one company wants to get rid of you, then all these other companies will have to either do business with the person who essentially wants to get rid of you. Hmm. So having that type of framework and that type of consumer protection, yeah. especially for conservative campaigns, I mean, think about this. Yeah. I mean, they were crazily. I mean, those campaigns were were silenced basically on these platforms. And this is statistically proven. Yes. I mean, there was all, there was a study that was done. I believe I want to say Cornell, yeah. where they found that certain uh, certain emails or certain uh, email brands like Gmail or Outlook yeah. were favoring one side or the other or using spam filters. Yeah. Now that's a whole different legal regime, but still same principle. The idea is some uh, some coders somewhere in the, in this company has a political grind and they want to enforce it mm. using whatever resources these companies have available to them. And that's literally the entire Internet. That's the resource we're talking about. Joel, thank you so much for being here with us on Heritage Explains. Head to the show notes, folks, to read more about this episode. Rate us, share us, comment. If you've got questions, we've got answers. Email us at managingeditor at heritage.org, and we will respond. Michelle's up next episode. We'll catch you then. Heritage Explains is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is produced by Michelle Cordero and Tim Desher, with editing by John Pop.